0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. As we continue to analyze Colin Kaepernick's National Anthem stance against racism and police violence, we speak to former NBA player and college hoops legend Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf.
1: There were things I wanted to say, things that I saw that was unjust. But why why am I afraid? Why am I a coward? Why can't I say this? And I had to slowly begin a process of doing that, which eventually led to the flag. When I listened to the words of Kaepernick and he said, this is bigger than football, that hit me because that's how change happens. And I'm not saying that you don't think about yourself and you don't think about your family. Of course we do. But if we really want to make a change, it has to go beyond you know, our individual selves. The politics of silence is a negative one. We're still accountable. And I said, I don't want to be on that side of history. You know, I want to stand up for principles and I want to live and die with a free conscience and a free soul, whether anybody likes it or not. For those that don't understand it now, eventually, if God wills, they will. You never know the impact that something like this is going to have on someone. But stick to your principles and more people are supporting him than maybe he knows.
0: Rauf did not stand for the anthem in 1996 as a member of the Denver Nuggets. He was suspended. He was fined. And he was eventually drummed out of the league. He's also the person whose actions inspired me when I was in college to first look at this intersection and history of sports and politics. And this is the first time I've ever interviewed this man. I'm excited. I hope you are too. What was your reaction to the anthem protest of Colin Kaepernick? And do you support his actions?
1: Well, my initial reaction, I was excited simply because I think it's needed, things like that. I think it was going to spark a debate. It was going to cause people to look in a direction maybe that they were not going to be rushed to look into. And it's good to see athletes in particular speak out. You know, we're, we're, we're sometimes encouraged to be silent. You know, I, you know, our contracts and endorsements have somewhat become tools to keep us silent. And so was, I was excited that he took the stand, and I'm I'm for him one thousand percent, no question.
0: Now it's pretty clear what's pushed Kaepernick to act. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, instances of police brutality. 1996 was a much different time. You know, we didn't have this movement. So, what was the catalyst for you to take your stand, your much lonelier stand? I would argue, back in 1996.
1: Well, it was it was a combination. I mean, for me, being a Muslim, you know, I don't believe in giving my allegiance to anyone or anything but God. So, when I began to read a lot, everything from Noam Chomsky to Gore Vidal, I mean, you name it, and I started to hear what they had to say about what was going on, not just domestically but globally. I began to have an issue, a more of an issue with the flag, the anthem itself, because these things are, are symbols. And I think they reflect the character of a nation of people or a government, so to speak, that, that is run by people. And if it's supposed to represent these things of freedom and equality and justice for all, and, and I don't see what that's being necessarily represented, then I couldn't see myself honestly standing up for something like that. So that's what Compelled me to make that move, and, and I still hold to that to this day in Islam we don't separate necessarily church and state uh in terms of politics and religion. they go hand in hand and what was amazing is some of the same people that came out against me at that time, even military personnel, and I understand it, how how the mind works at times they didn't understand that that stand was also for them because so many of them you know we here how well, you know, you're disrespecting those who have, and the same with him. He's hearing the same stuff that you're disrespecting those who made the ultimate sacrifice Mm -hmm. in fighting and dying for this country. And that's a whole nother issue, I think, in and of itself. But so many of them, they can't get medical care. A lot of them end up homeless. You know, I think that's more disrespectful Mm -hmm. for people that have gone and actually done those things with those intentions to come back and have to even put up with that nonsense. So it was for them too. and um, This was some of the reasons why I made that stand. And like I said before, I still hold to those principles and I still feel the same way. This is why I support it.
0: You know, In researching what happened to you in 1996, you were fined, you were suspended, and yet there is no rule that the NBA had or confirmed to have when checked on it against not standing for the anthem, which raises, of course, this question. Why do you think... They came down on you so hard.
1: As athletes, we're not expected to make social, political, you know, half positions. And it's okay. And I mentioned this before in the past. It seems like, you know, you have people that literally, there are people on rape charges. That's okay. We We can accept that. You have people that did other things. Those things are acceptable. But man, to be socially conscious like Craig Hodges or whoever, mm-hmm. to, to be politically conscious, this is unacceptable. So let's make an example to kind of discourage maybe other people from thinking the same thing. And this is why I think it, it went down that way. Actually, they had called me, Bernie had called me into his office.
0: That would be your coach, Bernie Bickerstaff.
1: Right. And I, I'm coming to play that night against uh, Shaquille O'Neal when he was with the Orlando Magic. And as soon as I walked into the locker room, there was some stairs. I said, okay, I know something's going on. I had no idea. <laughs> and, uh, the trainer, Jim Gillen say, hey, Bernie wants to see you. So I go down and he begins to tell me, say, well, Hey, they want you to stand or they're going to sustain you. I said, well, Bernie, they tell them to do what they have to do. He said, well, some individuals want to speak to you. And they begin to speak to me and they begin to try to convince me to stand without getting into the whole story. And uh, I just told him, well, listen, uh, this is my position. Do what you have to do. And I'm so naive at the time. I'm like, well, look, can I go now and get dressed? Mm. He said, no, you're suspended now. I said, now?
2: Mm.
1: He said, yes. I said, well, can I put my clothes on and and go support the team? No, you're not even allowed on the premises. You can't even be on the premises. I said, okay. So I left. And then that's when it, it hit the news and the rest is history.
0: Yeah, and as people should realize, as we're talking about this, you're what, 25 years old? I mean, Uh, you're still a very young man in the middle of of this storm. Yes, sir. How much of that do you think was NBA Commissioner David Stern? And do you think a player today in Adam Silver's league where he's clearly trying to step a little more gingerly around these kinds of political issues, particularly issues involving racism and black politics, do you think the same thing would happen to a player today who did what you did then?
1: I think a lot of it was David Stern. A guy at the time who, who was involved heavily with what was going on was Sharif Nasir, And they had, before that, fined me like $1,000 because my emblem wasn't showing. They said, we're going to fine you $1,000 per sock if you don't show your emblem. <laughs> per sock. NBA <laughs> emblem, yeah, on, uh, when we were playing. Now, there were other athletes who their socks, the emblem wasn't showing. So they were aware of these rules. Well, when we called, he called, and I think it was Rod Thorne at the time. He said, Rod, what's up with this whole flag issue? And Rod basically told him, uh, Sharif, I don't know of any rule that exists concerning the flag. Now, this is the guy that's overfinding people, for mm. socks. So you should know about if there's right. a rule to find someone if they don't stand. But I think a lot of it came from from Stern. Actually, there were reports that we were supposed to be meeting. Oh, he's flying to New York. I never talked to Stern in my life. Not once. We never had a conversation.
0: Mm. and, And a player today, do you think they would face a similar backlash? Or do you think because of the Black Lives Matter movement, because it's Adam Silver, not David Stern, do you think they'd get a little more leeway, certainly, than you got?
1: I think so. Two, because I think times have changed. You look at the power of social media now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to ignore the overwhelming support, I think, that he's getting. Then, maybe there was a lot of support, but the media had a choice if they wanted to show that support or not. So if they showed it, we saw it. If they didn't, we didn't see it. Now, it's kind of like when, uh, I think, the Abdullah brother, uh, when mm-hmm. he went into the end zone and he went into prostration and the NFL wanted to find him. But then people start coming out and say, no, no, what about Tebow? Because they you know, see those religious Muslims prostrate when they pray, you know, and they started bringing up Tebow and they had to pull back. So I think now because of social media, it's a little bit more challenging to pull those stunts because you, when you see the support, you know, you, you have to kind of uh, bend a little bit. And because if you don't, it's going to just be too obvious, <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. too obvious to ignore so I think it's a little different now. I still feel for him because with me, what happened was, and I, I felt it was going to happen. They were going to be very subtle with how they did things. My minutes began to decrease because, hey, let's put him in vulnerable positions so that his, when his minutes decrease, try to mess up his rhythm, look like the guy doesn't have it anymore. Uh, so... You know, basically, we weed him out of the league this way. And this is what I fear that may happen to him a little bit, where his time decreases. And I'm not keeping up with it extensively, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I know sometimes kind of like how it works and to put him in vulnerable positions so that if you do get rid of him, what we can blame him on, he's not as productive as he was before, but it's really sometimes much deeper than that. It's the stand that he took and what he's saying. And even that in itself, I mean, I know you're just... I love your writings, and and I've been reading your stuff, and they're prolific and thought-provoking, and and I appreciate that. But I just think that these things are going to take place with him eventually. Even the issue itself about the flag and the anthem, he's not even dealing with that. It's more about the issues. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? But we've taken it to the flag. We've taken it to the anthem. But we're ignoring still the issues that—why he's doing it in in many cases. And People have a problem with that, Dave. I mean, they just— unfortunately. it's something about an athlete speaking out that's not acceptable, but I think they've created this monster in a sense. We want you to view this af- these athletes as almost superhuman. We want you to admire them, but we want you to admire them for these things, but not for these things. Because now the voice of an athlete or entertainer, I, I think like for yourself, you deal with these issues day in and day out. You have professors, you have scholars that they're on these issues daily, but let's face it, the youth you know, it's hard, and, I, and I, go to, I go to different events, and they say, man, you can say, athletes can say, well, we can say, and it, it has more of an impact because mm. a lot of youth are not listening to teachers the way they're listening to athletes and entertainers. They're not listening to scholars and politicians. And so when an athlete comes out and they shed light on something that you don't necessarily want them to shed light on, they know that there's a lot of power associated with that. These youth. Well listen. Mhm. They're going to listen to that athlete that they admire. Mhm. You know.
0: And that that also creates more of an incentive to police that athletic platform. I agree. Because of that because they're handing power to people who are generally under 30, who are disproportionately African American and disproportionately come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds and those aren't usually people who get to speak in our society.
1: Exactly.
0: So you did what you did in 1996. And I just saw this remarkable documentary about your experience called Dawn's Early Light. It's available on yes. YouTube and I'll have that in the description of this podcast for people who want to see it, a link to it. And I think what's so interesting is that we often view an era of Islamophobia or anti-Islamic bigotry as emerging after 9-11. Yet there you are in 1996 dealing with this. And how much of the backlash against you do you think was driven by anti-Islamic bigotry? Oh, wow. <laughs> or how much was it just the fact that you were an athlete who was speaking out?
1: It, it's, it's hard to say uh, exactly, but I definitely think that was a factor, not just being an athlete, being an African-American athlete, but also having the tag of being a Muslim associated with it in light of how Muslims are perceived. You know, we hear the, well, the moderate Muslims and the radical Muslims, where I was on the side of being portrayed as this radical Muslim, and that's okay. You know, sometimes we have to be a little radical in order to shake things up. I don't don't mind that tag, but I think it had to do with how I was attacked and how I was perceived. The statement that I made, I thought, was a very balanced statement. I said, listen, this is what it represents, tyranny and oppression. But am I saying everything in America is bad? No, there's good that exists. But wherever the bad is, as a Muslim, even if it's in Saudi Arabia, we don't stand for it. Mm-hmm. That's balance. But, of course, they focus on tyranny oppression, tyranny oppression, and they build a case with that. And yeah, I thought it had something to do with it.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting what you said about sometimes you have to be a little radical sometimes, because that, that, that's so similar to a, a famous quote by Malcolm X. Sometimes to make change, you have to be willing to be shown in that light. And I remember hearing you once say that the autobiography of Malcolm X was the first book that you actually enjoyed reading. What did Malcolm mean to you? And what, what is his enduring influence on your life? And how did, it, how did his existence inform your decision in 96 to take your stand?
1: The way he transformed himself and evolved as a human being, and he became not just in how he began to see the world around him, but how he articulated it, the huge thing for me is just how courageous he was in doing so. Truth to him meant more than anything, Uh than his personal well-being. And I think anytime you want to try to bring about a change, it has to be bigger than yourself. That's why when I listened to the words of Kaepernick and he said, this is bigger than football, that hit me because that's that's how change happens. And I'm not saying that you don't think about yourself and you don't think about your family. Of course we do. But if we really want to make a change, it has to go beyond us as human beings, you know, our individual selves. And for me, Malcolm, just like the Martin Luther King, just like the Mac, all of those individuals represented that. Mm. We're just a product of those people who come out and do similar things, mm. and uh, uh, they planted those seeds in us. I would say, but this is what really drew me to Malcolm. I realized at a young age that you know I have to break these chains because I felt that I was doing the opposite. That there were things I wanted to say, things that I saw that was unjust. But why am I? Why am I afraid? Why? Why am I a coward? Why can't I communicate this? Why can't I say this? And I had to slowly begin a process of doing that which eventually led to the flag. And and you know, I mention this this all the time because I love this woman and her writings, you know, Erin Roy, the Indian political activist author. And she said, Once you see something you cannot see it. So to be silent to say nothing is just as political and act as speaking out. Either way you're accountable. Mm. You know, so we're not saved through our silence actually. You know, the politics of silence is a negative one. We're still accountable. And I said, I don't want to be on that side of history. Yeah. You know, I want to stand up for principles and I want to live and die with a free conscience and a free soul, whether anybody likes it or not. And I'm not always going to be right. Mm. I'm not, you know, I'm not always going to be eloquent. But, you know, I'm always going to try my best to stand up for what's right and what's just, whether people like it or not. And so I began that process. And and, and that's where, where it is taking me. And I don't have any regrets with that despite all of the, the, the backlash and all of the setbacks. Like one brother said, he said, a setback ain't number but a setup to come back. So that's, <laughs> that's the way I'm looking at it.
0: Nice. You certainly did not have a lot of peers in 1996, a lot of fellow athletes to draw inspiration from when you took your stance. I mean, you really were a man apart at that time. Did you have any athlete activists from history, though, who inspired you, who you thought about, who made you want to take that stance in 1996, who made you feel like that you were a link in a chain, a part of a tradition that was bigger than you in sports? Oh,
1: my goodness. Muhammad Ali.
0: Ali front and center.
1: Yeah, no no question. Muhammad Ali also represented those same things. I mean, he was he was courageous. He was fearless. He spoke his mind. Didn't care what you thought as long as he felt he was doing what was right. And I say that in context, we always care. But when it's all said and done, listen, if, if I believe that I'm standing on the ground of truth, then it is what it is. You're just going to have to not like it, but I have to stand on that. He was definitely the athlete that if, if I looked at, because growing up and seeing him, not just fight, but just his character definitely was a major influence. And even now, when I think about people like Paul Robeson Mm. and stuff that he had to go through, uh, there was a lot of athletes, uh, the Carlos, you know, Mm -hmm. those brothers in terms of uh, the Olympics. Mm -hmm. They paved the way and uh, we have to respect that. You can always find someone will say, hey man, when you did it, my mood it was tougher than when Kaepernick did it. Then somebody can say, hey, but when Ali did it, it was tougher than you did it. Then somebody can say, man, but well, when Paul did it, it was tougher <laughs> than Ali did it. Well, shoot, when Nat Turner did it, <laughs> so we can always go back and find it. But the key is that there's somebody that's always there standing up and trying to be a voice for what's right, and we got to appreciate it. We might not appreciate it now, and that's the sad thing. Sometimes we we'll appreciate it years later. But hopefully we can reduce that time and we start appreciating it a little bit sooner than maybe 30, 40, 50 years later when these things happen. But I think social media now definitely helps because you can't ignore the support now right. that's out there. You have this young lady now, I think she's a soccer player. Yeah, Megan
0: Rapinoe.
1: Ended up supporting him. Mm-hmm. This is beautiful. You mentioned something earlier that usually it comes from those segments of society where people have you know, the ghettos and people have been deprived where they make these type of stands, It would be beautiful if we can have people like her on mm-hmm. the European side, you know, because everybody is being affected in some way, shape or form.
0: Mm.
1: And to show that support, you know, it would be a great thing. A great
0: thing. That's what solidarity looks like. Here's a quick clip from the documentary Dawn's Early Light about the life of Mahmoud abdul Rauf. Investigators are claiming arson in the early morning blaze at the home of Mahmoud abdul Rauf. The house, which was under construction, was significantly damaged. However, no one was injured. abdul Rauf, who was formerly known as Chris Jackson, returned to his hometown of Gulfport in 1998. He is currently a leader in the local Muslim community. Abdul Raouf believes the fire was racially motivated, claiming he found graffiti spelling out the letters KKK on his property. Thinking about your life, thinking about you growing up in Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, you know, there's this history of the Ku Klux Klan terrorizing your hometown. And right now we're seeing this normalization Of white supremacy through the trump campaign and i wonder if you had any thoughts about how to survive and combat this kind of organized white supremacy
1: wow that's a heavy question i'd have to put some thought i mean it's easy to say you know first we have to become aware of these things and have the information and the knowledge and education that's the easy answer i think also from maybe an economical standpoint being able to establish ourselves on an economic level, economy is a big part of it. Education and knowledge is a big part of it. You know, I hear a lot when people they're quick to say, "Well, at least it was a peaceful protest." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, people may not like what I have to say, but you know, there's so much violence out there. In particular, as as Kaepernick said, in relation to police brutality, for example, people are getting killed right and left for having packs of cigarettes in their hands for very, very minor things. And my question would be, well, and I don't want to use the word violence because I know sometimes that that can be taken out of context, can be looked at as out of control. But at some point, we have the right. We don't need a piece of paper to tell us this. We have the right to defend ourselves as human beings in this country when we're threatened. And sometimes it takes to go to that next level for people to hear you. You know, even I think in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, it says if the government doesn't fulfill the objectives that it's supposed to fulfill. Then we have the right to change it by force. Even in this country, if you see someone being attacked or what have you, or there's an injustice occurring, you can make a citizen's arrest. So that's a physical confrontation there. But let's just face it. History is this way. They, mm-hmm. Not everything, you know, when, when you're dealing with a person from a position of power, power conceives nothing but power, they're just not going to give it up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Just having dialogue and sitting at the table all the time. We, we would love to think that this is the case. You know, I take offense to that, trying to pacify us. Well, OK, I agree with you, but I don't like the protest. Mm. Well, <laughs> well, how are we supposed to protest? You know, Craig Hodges, I love Craig Hodges. He said something on one of your interviews And that armed conflict won't do it. And I'll just say this. I don't think one thing will just do it. I don't think calling your congressmen and senators alone will do it. I don't think having candlelight vigils alone will do it. I don't think armed conflict alone will do it. But I think it's always a combination of things that we have to see in order for people to say, okay, enough is enough. Let's come together and sit down. Mm. And history has been that way. It's not just been one way. And it's easy to say to someone that hasn't gone through an experience, oh, you shouldn't protest like this, or you shouldn't protest. like When people are dying on the streets, people are starving to death. You know, health care, people are going broke because you have to make a choice between paying your bills to save your life or your children's life or having a roof over your head. We shouldn't have to make these choices. Mm. and and how rich this country is. We shouldn't have to make them. And it bothers me every single day I wake up and I hear these stories. So at some point, you know, look, people are just not going to sit back and just keep praying about it. It's like Frederick Douglass said, I prayed for freedom for 20 years, and I never received an answer until I started praying with my legs. Mm. So at some point, you got to say, you know what? Prayer alone ain't going to do it either. If that makes any sense,
0: yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, people are definitely going to want to know what you're up to today, how you're filling your days, what you're doing. Uh, so, what is life like now for Mahmoud Abdul Rauf?
1: Dave, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to learn as much as I can, and as I'm learning, I'm trying to apply. I'm spending time with my children. I do a lot of uh, professional basketball training. I'm, I'm really trying to work on. At some point, uh, I want to get a couple of books. One on my life story. I'm doing a lot of work with a group, um, the Amood Foundation. They do a lot of work in not just Somalia, but, you know, building wells and uh, hospitals and and uh, educational facilities. But I'm just trying to do as much as I can so that uh, hopefully I can leave a legacy worth leaving of being a benefit, not just to myself and my family, but just to society at large. I'm just trying to figure this whole thing out as I go.
0: Wow. <laughs> Every time I speak to somebody of, of your, um, I think, iconic status, I always ask my listeners if they have a couple questions. And Raphael Cohen, he wanted to ask about your relationship with your college coach, Dale Brown. Dale Brown's got his own very interesting history when it comes to these issues. And was was he a source of support for you throughout this process?
1: Yes. Yes, he was. Uh, actually, Dale was the one that gave me the autobiography for Malcolm X. Wow. Uh, to read. Because uh, he's, you know, he's such a an avid reader. Uh, he, I just talked to him maybe a couple of days ago, a few days ago. He's always keeping in touch, always sending me and all the players actually uh, things to reflect on, whether it's motivational things, political things. So he's been doing that ever since we've been in college. So he was definitely a major influence in, in introducing me to Malcolm, but also just uh, when need be a voice, and and also my uh, the assistant coach, Coach Karst as well very close to him, always keeping in touch with him.
0: Mm. Yes. And Ryan Chick, that's his name, he wanted to know what it felt like to light up John Stockton for 51 (laughs) points. And it's just like, he's like, what, what, what does that say? I mean, John Stockton is, for people who don't know, he's not just considered a great guard, but also one of the best defensive guards in NBA history. And you lit him up for 51. What did that feel like?
1: Well, as athletes, We always look to be in that zone, and sometimes coaches just, you know, leave us alone, let us play. (laughs) And that was just one of those nights that they just let you play and let you be you, and it so happened that the the ball was falling, and we all have those days. But it, it was wonderful because Utah was one of those teams that just used to get underneath our skin. They beat us more than we beat them, and it was just tough to win against them a lot of times it seemed. And to be able to do that in their arena was special time.
0: Rolls to Mahmoud, another three. Got it again! Unbelievable! We got a foul as well! A chance for a four-point play! 41 for Mahmoud. We're in the third quarter!
1: And that's Mahmoud. He's in a zone with people running at him, Jerry. He's not even hesitating on it now. When you're feeling it that good, you want him to shoot it every time down the floor. Unbelievable.
0: Last question is... uh, You know, yeah, it's a fan question and it's from me. It's like I watch today's NBA and sometimes I think you were ahead of your time and that you would have thrived so much more in today's space and pace NBA. I look at Steph Curry, shoot first, bomber, and I'm like, that's Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. And I just, I feel like the NBA of your time did not really know what to do with a six foot one scoring guard. And now they would. Have you ever thought about that, that you would do better today?
1: I mean, it's hard to say, but, but definitely I, I've thought about it and times were different then. Uh, throw it to the big man. It, it, right now it's more, it seems, guard-oriented. We talk about it all the time. We say, man, Golden State, they don't have a green light. They have a fluorescent light. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, they can literally shoot it wherever they want to shoot it. And, man, to play in a, in a system like that and you don't have to look over your shoulder, <laughs> I mean, it's it's Amazing. it's a whole different world. And on top of that, you can't really touch guys today. Mm -hmm. It's like target practice with these guys. But but I'll say this, man. I love watching them. I love watching someone who's skillful at what they do and consistently so. Because I know what it takes to get to that point. You know, we can talk all day where they have open shots. But, man, sometimes open shots are the toughest because you're expected to make them. And you put so much pressure on yourself because the world is watching you by yourself. you got to make it. Mm -hmm. As opposed to somebody's on you and you're shooting it, there's an excuse. "Eh, Good defense. So you think about it, man, but God only knows. God only knows. It it would have been interesting, I tell you. Definitely would have been interesting.
0: And last question, if you could say something directly, like through your phone right now to Colin Kaepernick, what would you say to him?
1: I would tell him I love him for the position that he's taken. And it seems like he definitely is an intelligent brother just the process that he went through of having to investigate feeling these thoughts but not wanting to come out too soon because he wanted to investigate it more then involving his family in the process not that he needed their okay but making sure that they were aware of his move i think the way he went about it was intelligent and i would just tell him man look you know for what it's worth not that he need my voice or anybody's voice because he's made this decision on his own through investigation, and he's comfortable with it, and he's happy with it, just, hey, stick to your guns, stick to your principles. And uh, for those that don't understand it now, eventually, if God wills, they will. You never know the impact that something like this is gonna have on someone, but stick to your principles. And more people are supporting him than maybe he knows. Because I get it when I'm out, when I'm in the airport, when I'm in the gym, when I'm going places. I've had more people come to me and say, man, I really appreciate you standing on your principles. You do it because hopefully it's the right thing to do. So you're not really thinking about who accepts it or who who doesn't, but a part of you, you want people to accept it and you want people to understand it, but that's not the driving force. It's look, I just think this is the right thing to do, but you do appreciate it when people can look and say, hey, I appreciate that. It meant a lot to me because of this, I had to rethink some things and now this is the way I think or this is the way I see things. It's a beautiful thing because I was influenced by people who did it. <laughs> you know, we all are influenced. Wow. So that that's basically what I would tell him. Just to keep going.
0: Wow. Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Thank you. This is, in my opinion, the best interview we've ever done. Thank you for being a part of it. Now we have some choice words where I read from one of my columns at thenation.com. If you want to follow along, go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. It's in the description of this week's show. So the first time I met soccer star Megan Rapino was at the conference South by Southwest Sports, where she was speaking on a panel about LGBT issues in the athletic world. When asked in the Q&A about the international soccer body FIFA's corruption, as well as its coddling of countries that have openly anti-LGBT laws, the Women's World Cup star said simply, "FIFA." No. That's when I politically fell head over heels for a player whom we have since learned time and again is fearless on and off the field. Whether fighting for equal pay in soccer or advocating for LGBT rights, Rapino has been on the front lines of the sports world, straight, no chaser. This is why Megan Rapino would have been a safe bet to be the first white pro athlete to take a knee in solidarity with San Francisco 49er Colin Kaepernick's national anthem protest against police violence already NFL players Eric Reed and Jeremy Lane who are African-american have joined in taking some of the weight and shouldering a portion of the violent vitriol being thrown Kaepernick's way although a number of white players and even coaches like Seahawks Pete Carroll have offered verbal support of Kaepernick's right to protest none have supported either his cause or taken that knee then on Sunday we had rapino
2: do it, do it, do it.
0: As the National Anthem played before a National Women's Soccer League match between the Chicago Red Stars and her squad, the Seattle Reign, there she was on one knee. But even far more impressive and useful than Rapino's action was her stated motivations. It was very intentional, she said. It was a little nod to Kaepernick and everything that he's standing for right now. I think it's actually pretty disgusting the way he was treated and the way a lot of the media has covered it and made it about something that it absolutely isn't. We need to have a more thoughtful, two-sided conversation about racial issues in this country. Rapino also connected her solidarity with what she has confronted in a country where it is still legal to discriminate against LGBT people in more than two-thirds of the 50 states. She said... Being a gay American, I know what it means to look at the flag and not have it protect all of your liberties. It was something small that I could do and something that I plan to keep doing in the future. It's important to have white people stand in support of people of color on this. We don't need to be the leading voice, of course, but standing in support of them is something that's really powerful. Rapino also told USA soccer legend Julie Foudy that she was inspired to act because of the venom aimed at Kaepernick. She said, "I am disgusted with the way Colin has been treated, and the fans and hatred he has received in all of this. It is overtly racist. Stay in your place, black man. It just didn't feel right to me. It needs to be everyone confronting problems in our country, not just people of color." Rapino then told Foudy that she would continue, "quote." To do it for games going forward, end quote. as with Kaepernick, the rage that Rapino has provoked was immediate and ugly. In addition to the usual online bigotry brigade, American Soccer Now actually held an online poll where people could vote on whether Rapino should be kicked off the. US national team. Their anger and threats may be intense. But they also lose their undistilled potency when racist rageaholics have to go after multiple athletes at the same time. That's why solidarity from other people in the sports world, particularly white athletes, matters. Rapino's action raises an implicit challenge for those white athletes who are supporting Kaepernick to show their solidarity more publicly. The quarterback's stance has morphed in front of our eyes from an action against police violence to one that raises the question about whether athletes have the freedom to speak or if, as many clearly believe, they sign away that right with their contract. As Santa Clara police threaten to refuse to do security for 49ers games and online hate mongers froth in a full frenzy, the need for athletic allyship becomes all the more apparent. But one thing is clear— Rapino's action ensures that this isn't going anywhere, and that Kaepernick's words and deeds are having an impact that seems to be growing with every ugly attack from those who think that those who play sports and also face oppression should be seen and not heard. And now the Just Stand Up Award for somebody who is using their hyper exalted brought to you by Nike platform in the world of sports to actually say something. You might think that this week it's going to go again to Colin Kaepernick for standing strong or maybe Megan Rapinoe, since I just put in a good amount of time saying how awesome she is. But actually, this week, the Just Stand Up Award, it goes to somebody who we do not know yet. It goes to someone without a name. It goes to the white male athlete who is going to be the first person this week to actually take a knee with Colin Kaepernick, or who is going to publicly say that not only do they support Colin Kaepernick's right to speak out, but they support having this discussion about police accountability and police violence. I know they're out there. I've talked to them, and they've talked to a lot of other reporters as well but it's time to match the words with deeds. I know you're out there, and I can't wait to fill in this blank next week on the podcast and say your name. Now, we always like to play a call or two every week on the Edge of Sports podcast. People who call into the Edge of Sports hotline. That's 401-426-EDGE. That's 401-426-3343. Let's hear from Patrick right now. Hey, I thought you guys did
2: a particularly great episode this week. Really liked it. But there was one thing about all the, the dumb Kaepernick hot takes throughout the week. The worst I heard was the, if you don't like America, leave take. I don't understand why this guy is not allowed to criticize America. I mean, we have a presidential candidate running off that. But this guy doesn't, and it's a giant problem. Anyways, the show is great. The show is great all the time. You guys are awesome. Thanks, bye.
0: Thank you so much for that, Patrick. Um, I actually want to respond to that because Donald Trump explicitly came back on Colin Kaepernick and said that if he does not like America, he should find somewhere else to live. And people should be very clear about what that means and what that is. Uh, something very similar was said to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was Lou Alcindor on the Today Show back in 1968. Um, Alcindor said he wasn't going to go to the Olympics, and Joe Garagiola, the host of the Today Show at the time, said, well, maybe you should find somewhere else to live. And the way Kareem interpreted that then and the way Kareem interpreted that in his book Giant Steps is absolutely the way Colin Kaepernick and all of us who are defending Colin Kaepernick should um, interpret that now. What that means is go back to Africa straight up. That's what that is. That is a racist statement. When black people complain and you say find somewhere else to live, that is go back to Africa. And the template that Donald Trump is putting down is quite simple. It's if you are white and wealthy, you have the right to complain about this country. And if you are black, you do not. Now, if Donald Trump was smart, if he was clever, if he wasn't the Wreckit ralph of politicians, Wreck-It-Ralph in a white hood, what he would do is say, you know what? I disagree with Colin Kaepernick, but clearly we both agree that there's something broken about this country. I want to invite Colin Kaepernick to sit down with me so we could possibly come up with some common ground to speak about how to have a better country going forward. That was a political layup. And Donald Trump did not take that political layup. You know why he didn't take it? Because his racism is actually stronger in his mind and in his base than any effort that he has to actually try to unite this country and win the presidency on that basis. He would rather lose it on a white nationalist basis than win it on a basis that brings people together. And I think this Colin Kaepernick story and his answer to Colin Kaepernick exposes that terribly. Go back to Africa is not how you respond to a debate about this country because the person who raises criticisms happens to have dark skin. Thank you so much for the call, Patrick. Next week, this is the question for everybody that I want you to try to answer. The question is, what athlete have you not heard from yet who you want to hear from about the Colin Kaepernick protest? Call us at 401-426-EDGE. That's 401-426-3343. We'll play the best takes on next week's show. Thank you for joining us this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Thank you to my producer, Dan Bloom. You can contact me, Dave Zirin, at Edge of Sports or Edge of Sports at Slate.com. You can listen to all back episodes of the show at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. For everybody out there listening, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.